Um, let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we don't know the future. We don't know what our lives have in store for us, but you do. Um, And Father, I pray that you would help us to be more concerned with you and how we relate to you than we are about the events that will take place in our lives, Father. Lord, there's, there's those of us in this room that are all over the place. Some of us, life is excellent right now, and some of us, life is exhausting. Uh, I pray that we would all remember that uh, we have the same access to you, the God that controls all of our lives. So help us just to lock in and to focus on you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, I did a lot of dumb things as a kid. Uh, one of them came when I was maybe six years old in the first grade. I was a curious little guy and... Um, The radio was plugged into my house one day, and there was a razor blade next to the radio. And don't ask me why, but I just thought, I picked it up, and I said, what would take place if I cut the cord with the razor blade? So I start to cut, and this big spark flies out, and my index finger was, like, swollen and glittery for days and it hurt and it was painful and very early on it was very very clear with that one instance um, that I didn't make the right move I made a bad choice and so what I found out is kind of what we all find out we 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 all tend to come into this world and we try to find out what's good and bad And one of the first and most reliable guides that we have towards what's good and what's bad is our feelings, how things make us feel. This is why when parents have kids that are trying to touch the stove and they keep them from the the stove, it only takes a kid one time to touch a red stove to know that hurts. If it hurts, it's bad. And if it's bad, I'm going to stay away from it. A a few weeks ago, I talked about how my uh, former career before being a pastor was that of a math teacher. And so what I found is that equations help me to make sense of life. And I feel like that this one is true. It's one that we come into the world with, and that's this. Hurt equals bad. If it hurts me, it doesn't feel good. It feels bad. And therefore, I want to avoid it. And in a very primary sense, it's a good thing because it protects us from lots of things that would hurt us. It keeps us from putting our hands on red stoves. It keeps us from relationships that may harm us. It's good in that it protects us. However, life is more complex than this. If it hurts, it's bad. If it's bad, then I need to stay away from it. Life is more complex than that. There's certain things that hurt us that are good for us. And if we only use this in the way that we walk through life, we're going to find out that life is more complex and we'll spend all of our time trying to escape and avoid things that are bad. And what we're going to find very quickly is that not just that's a bad way to live life, but it's an impossible way to live life. There's some of us here that 
or successful when it comes to being able to escape the bad. There's some of us here that have resources and money and time and good jobs and things that will help us get away from bad things. And we spend all of our time trying to make life as comfortable as we can. But then there's some of us that can't escape things that are bad. There's some of us that are gripped with these chronic illnesses or heartaches, or we live with folks that have that. And so what takes place is that it's always there. And even in the times when you try to forget about what's wrong, somebody comes and talks to you, and the first thing that they ask you, if they know that you have a chronic illness or somebody that has just passed, the very first thing that they'll come and ask you is, are you okay? And you say, well, I was until you asked me. Now I'm back into how I feel. And what we quickly find out is that when it comes to hard times, you can't just get past them. It is impossible to get past something that is always going to find its way into your future. And hardships and adversity will always find their way into your future. Prosperity may or may not. You may not get the job of your dreams. You may not get married. You may not get the house that you hoped for. Some people will never have to be concerned about dealing with prosperity in this life because they just have a hard life and they never get what they hope for. But everybody will have to learn how to deal with adversity because it's in everybody's future. It's coming. It is a certainty. So one of the most important questions that we can answer is this. How do we face it? How do we deal with adversity and hard times? And here's what I want you to know. Nobody deals with it successfully by luck. It has to be learned. It is not like winning the lottery where it could take place. You could just stumble on the right digits. Nobody stumbles on the right way to deal with adversity. It hits every one of us. And we don't feel like we're great swimmers. We feel like we're drowning. And if our feelings are our guide to where things that hurt me means that it's bad, then we'll get to a place where we end up hating our lives. And not just our lives, but we'll end up hating the very God that gave us that life. And not in an explicit way, I hate you, God. Y'all are in church, so y'all would never say that. But in a subtle way. And subtly, we show the disdain that we have for God by avoiding him. By not wanting to be close. By not wanting to pray. By not wanting to read. By not wanting to share the good things about him. By not wanting to make our lives about him. How do we face bad times or hard times. And our text gives us that. So turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 6. As you find your way to Ecclesiastes chapter 6, I want to help you see that before we get to how we face 
bad times or hard times, the very first thing that we have to do is find out what is the best definition of good. If we've been guided by our feelings, then what takes place is our feelings can lead us to a definition of good that is not the true one and not the right one. And so what we are going to see here in this text is that wisdom helps to give us a different definition of good. Wisdom teaches us to define what's ultimately good by our futures, not by our feelings. It tells us that if we're really going to define what's good, our feelings are a moving target. They can't be trusted. They shouldn't be ignored, but they can't be trusted to guide us towards what's good. If we really wanted to be guided towards what's good, we need to look to the future not our feelings. And this is what our text does right here. Just to give you a context of where we are in the book, this is the section of the book that is not an autobiography, but it deals with advice from a wise teacher. And what he's trying to do is he's trying to unmask things that we see in life and show us the true colors. So chapter five starts off and he says, hey, worship towards God You may think that it's a good and a safe thing, but it's not as safe as you think that it is. You can actually do yourself more harm than good if you come to God in the wrong way. Last week, he talks about money, right? And we think money is good. It's this great hope. And what he says is, yeah, it is this good and it's this great hope. But I want you to know money is not as secure as you think that it is. And now what he's going to spend his time, he's going to talk through at adversity and hard times, things that we hate, that we view as bad, that we want to stay away from. And what he's saying is, is these hard times, they feel bad, they feel awful. But, there's, but they're not as bad as you think that they are if you don't judge them by how you feel, but you judge them in light of your future. So the very first thing that he's going to help us see is this. Two truths that seem like they're at odds, and it's this. Your future is determined but uncertain. When it comes to trying to look towards our future, the hard thing is we sit back and say, I don't know my future, and that's true, but just because you don't know it doesn't mean it hasn't been written. The Bible says your future is determined, but it's uncertain. Start with me here in verse 10. Verse 10 says this. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. He just starts off and says, hey, everything that's gone on when he says it has been named, that's a thing that's called the divine passive, which means this. It is a passive verse meant to point back to the fact that God was the one that did it. So if I say, I was named John, you're not sitting here saying, well, I wonder who named him. And your mind is, oh, well, yeah, John was provided that name by somebody else. We assume that his name was provided to him by his parents. The divine passive does the same thing. So when he says here, what has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is. Who's it been named by? God. 
God is not in the dark as to what takes place in the future. The God that we serve sits outside of time. So God doesn't just predict the future. God directs the future. It has been determined. Job chapter 14 verse 5 says this. A person's days are determined. You have decreed his months and have set limits. He can't exceed. God's mapped out all of your days. And it's not like a hotel room that you book where if you're going to stay longer that you can just pay more and extend your stay. There's nobody that can extend their stay here. Psalms chapter 139 verse 16 says this about God. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days formed for me when there were none of them. And so he just starts off and the very first thing is this, is that your, your future, our lives have already been directed by God God knows what will take place. And you may sit back and say, well, nah, well, if that's true, then that means that I'm just a robot. And the choices that I make, they really don't matter. And it seems like that those truths are contradictory, that if God's really set things in place, then how can he hold me accountable for the things that I've done? And so what I want you to see here is this. We're not going to get into trying to resolve that. I just want you to know that when the Bible talks about God being in control and the fact that he's directed your future, it's not to make you apathetic. It's to give you an assurance that when he says things like all things work together for the good, for those that love God and are called according to his purpose, God can say that because he's directed the future how it'll work. Romans 8.28 says that verse, all things work together for the good. And chapter 9 is all about how God is in control. This is meant to help you and I see that God doesn't make plans like we do. Just so long as the rain kind of holds off, then I'll be able to do all these things that I want to do. God, God's plans aren't contingent on anybody. So he starts off this and says, all right. Our futures are determined, but look here at, at verse 10, the end of verse 10. But he says they're uncertain to us. And that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? That what he says is God set things in place. And even if I knew what was going to take place, I can't disagree with it, nor can I change the direction that he wants to go because God's stronger. Uh, my wife and I, a few years ago, were in Austin, and her nephews were in the car, and we're getting ready to go to the movies. And we say, well, where do y'all want to eat? And they have a tough time deciding. And so I say, well, we're just going to go to McDonald's. And the four-year-old in the back says, well, I want to go to Wendy's. And I said, well... I'm driving, and we're going to go to McDonald's. And so as we drive, you know, we got mad and angry. And if he, in a fit of rage, takes off his seatbelt and jumps and climbs to the front seat to try to turn the, the wheel, do you know who's not concerned? Me, because he's four years old. All right, I'll take him. I'll put him back in the back seat. 
and we'll go to McDonald's. What he's saying right here is that talk all you want, dispute and be frustrated at the things that come your way. But do you know that God is still in the driver's seat and he is going to direct your life. So you can't avoid these hard times that he sends his way. Verse 12, it says this, for who knows what is good for a man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow. A shadow is a very real thing that we see on the concrete, but once it's gone, it doesn't leave a concrete impression. It goes as quick as it comes. And that's how he compares our lives. For who can tell man what will be good after him under the sun? And so he just starts off with, all right, who can determine, who can define What's really good? And do you know who can? The person who sees and controls the future. That as we want to define this sense of good, we have to look to the future, not our feelings. And that's what he's going to do. Chapter 7, verses 1 through 14, what you'll see in verse 1 and verse 2 and verse 3 and verse 5 and Seven and eight and ten is you'll see these words better than, better than, better than, better than. And all that he's trying to do right here, all that he's trying to do is to help us see there is something that is better than something else. He gives us a comparison. He helps us to determine what's good if there are two choices and the way that he's going to determine what's good is by trying to get us to look to the future and not our feeling because none of the things that he says here are better than actually feel better and so if your feelings are your guide then you're gonna miss out but everything the way that he defines better is not by our eyes being on our feelings but by our future. No one knows their future for certain, but everybody knows what's certainly in their future. And so he starts off with the one thing that's certainly in all of ours, and that's your death. Seven, one through four. A good name is better than precious ointment, or it could be said as a good name is better than precious ointment. Ointment, that's something that is common sense to us. You can buy more perfume, but you can't buy a good name. So one of them's better. In this same way, look, look at what he says here. The day of death is better than the day of birth. Verse 2, it is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth or in the house of laughter. So as he tells us to look at what's good, he tells us, look to the future, not your feelings. And the one thing that we all have in common that's in all of our future is that one day you and I will die. One day, everybody that you know 
in this room will be able to create no new experiences with you. They'll only have memories. And the memories will fade with time. Like ink on a piece of paper in the rain. And it's sad to talk about. It's uncomfortable. It's strange. It's a thing where when you bring up death and start to talk about death, the fact that one day, regardless of how much you eat or how healthy you eat or how much you work out or how hard you pray or how God loves you, that one day you will be sitting, laying in a room in a box at the front and everybody will be crying. It's unsettling to the point where even when it's brought up and talked about and you continue to go in and examine on how your mom will cry for you, how your death, though you're done, it'll drive people that love you to depression. And the more and more that it's talked about, the more uncomfortable everybody feels. That nobody enjoys getting that phone call when you hear that somebody dies. Nobody enjoys going to funerals. Nobody wants a funeral to be long and drawn out. Everybody gets to a funeral and they say, I don't want to be here. I can't wait until it's done. It doesn't feel good. But he says, it's one of the best things for you in this life. Do you know why? Because it reminds you, it reminds all of us that this life that you have right now is a non-renewable resource. This life that you have right now has an expiration date. And the people that are the wisest, the people that make the most use of their life, they never forget that. And though it's sad and frustrating and heartbreaking, they find out it's better to face that than to live in denial and try to forget about it. He says that, that if you have to choose between going to a funeral and a wedding, RSVP for the funeral. Because it sobers us about life in a way that nothing else does. Just by a show of hands, I know that there's some folks in the room. Raise your hand if you've been to a funeral or you're preparing, uh, been to one in the last month or so, or you're preparing to go to one right now. Preparing for that time is, is like, there's nothing else in the world like it. It's like you get glasses, and for a moment, for a time, you see life clearly. Verse 3, when it says here, sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. He's not saying that laughter is wrong, but what he is saying is, there's something about sorrow and grief, especially that comes from reflecting on death 
that removes superficial joys. And it forces you to find joy in a lasting one in things that really matter. He says, here's what fools do. People that are fools ignore the inevitable. And there is a difference in between being ignorant of and ignoring something. Being ignorant is not a derogatory statement. It's a descriptive one. It's saying, I just don't know that it's there. Right? So you buy a home, and this took took place with us. I bought a home, and I just didn't know that you had to turn off your pipes when it got cold. And so our pipes burst, and our basement flooded. That's just being ignorant. But it's one thing to, to, to ignore an inevitability. It's like saying, I bought a home, and I didn't know I had to pay a mortgage. Well, of course you did. It's inevitable. You have to pay. And you can act like you don't know all you want to, but what's going to take place is somebody is going to come and evict you. Somebody is going to come and to collect. And he just starts off here and says, listen, our lives... Spend all the time that you want laughing and joking and feasting and having a good time trying to forget about our problems, trying to do what feels good. But he's saying that's not the way to live. That is not a wise way to live at all. Because all that's going to take place is we're going to be blindsided by what's inevitable. Right? Verse 4, the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. But the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. What he's not saying is that in hard times and in times that we grief, it's not okay to laugh and to, and, and to um, enjoy life. Right? When my brother died, Netflix was God's gift to me because it helped me to just to be able to detox at times and just to get away. He's saying that it's not wrong to laugh. But it's foolish to live there. If that's your house, if that's what characterizes your life, doing all that you can to just forget about our problems and your hard times, will be blindsided by the inevitable. And I want you to know this. It's weird to talk about death. And the more that you talk about it, the more that people will accuse you of bringing the mood down. It's unwelcome. But it's wise. In 2015, when we were getting ready to plant this church, we had a launch team meeting. So we were at Richard's house, and there was a group of us there. And and as we talked about longevity, our goal was we really wanted to be here for a long time. We sat and we, we talked. And so I brought up, hey, y'all, if we're all going to be here for a long time, then what takes place is that if we all grow old and gray, that we will have to bury some of the folks that are in this room. And I went on and on and on and talked about death in in, in maybe too much of a morbid sense. And at the end of that time, folks were like, man, John, you really brought the mood down. Man, that's crazy. And, And so I sat back and me being the 
struggling with the people pleasing that I do. I was a coward and I backed off and I'm like, maybe I did talk about it too much. I brought it up and man, this is a good time. We should just sit back and rejoice. And I didn't talk about it again. And then the first six months of our church hit. And every three weeks or so, somebody lost a brother or a grandmother or a sister or all of this stuff. And do you know what took place? We all kind of sat back and said, that made sense. I sat back and I was like, I failed because I wanted to make people feel good. That, they, that I didn't give them what was good because I gave them what I thought would make them feel good. But good is not determined by our feelings, but by our future. And there is a healthy way in which we need to reflect on the fact that one day, the people in this room will not be alive. You will not live in this earth, in that body, in this life forever. Nobody gets away from it. And the wisest thing that we can do, the best way that we can live in the here and now, is to reflect on on that truth. So just a few things here. The very first one is this. It will be unwelcome when you bring it up, but don't be a coward. Talk about it. And especially for those of us here that are young, invitations to funerals may come few and far between. But my word of advice is especially the younger that you are, accept every funeral invitation that you can. There's just something sobering about sitting there. Oscar Romero says that there are certain things that can only be seen through eyes that have cried. It's something about sitting in that room and being reminded that I don't have much time left here. We are going to move on, but I just want to throw a disclaimer right here. Sometimes when you're introduced to a topic that you don't talk about so much, it creates intrigue. So now, if you haven't thought about death, uh, you have have been thought about it in a long time, what could go through your head is a bunch of things. Well, well, I'm not prepared to die. Uh, How do I count onto those that have gone through hard times? Uh, What do I say? What don't I say? How long is too long to wait? And there's all of these things that can go through our mind, and we can put pressure on the first medium that we hear it from to answer all of those questions. And I want you to know this sermon is not just about that. I just hope that this will serve as a springboard for us to think about that. But what I do want you to know is that March the 15th here on a Wednesday night, Danielle and Tadashi Anderson are going to lead us through an evening about how to deal with grief through the lens of them who four years ago lost their one-year-old son suddenly. And all of us are going to have to console somebody at some point that is crying for the loss of somebody else. And you're either going to help or harm. And so we have that date set up so that we don't harm, but that we as a church can come alongside and help. So mark that down, March the 15th. Verse 5. 
It's better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness and a bribe corrupts the heart. We're not going to spend much time here, but the next thing that he says is that those that think about how to best use their life now will find that they themselves are flawed and incomplete. They'll find that, man, I failed at certain things. I need to be better than I am. And one of the things that can sting most in the life that we live right now is rebuke or criticism. There's nothing that hurts more than being told that you're not all that by somebody that you want nothing more than their admiration. And if you judge what's good based on how you feel, verse 5, right? It's better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. If you judge what's good in this life based on how you feel, do you know what type of friends that you're going to surround yourself with? People that constantly sing your praises. And do you know the people that you're going to want to push yourself away from? People that tell you that you're not as good as you think that you are. And what he's saying is this is a danger because in the Bible when it talks about flattery, Proverbs 29.5, it says, He who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. That he feels good now, but it, it, it sets him up for failure later. If you choose your friendships based on people that make you feel good and push away everybody that pushes back on decisions and choices that you've made, you've sacrificed your future for some good feelings in the here and now. And I want you to know that when it comes to flattery, it's not just that it's unhelpful, but it's, it's, it's harmful. When verse 6 says that it's like the crackling sound of thorns in a fi fire, it's like throw thorns into a flyer, fire and what you'll get is it'll crackle and it'll pop and it may be soothing, but it's not going to add any warmth or heat and it's going to be gone. It's vain. It's worthless. And we don't have to look far through the Bible to see that Satan himself was the ultimate Flatterer, Adam and Eve, you're more important than this. It comes with Job, he does the same thing. Even to Jesus, he sits down and says, well, you're the son of God, so why don't you just do this? Flattery's harmful. And we don't have much time to spend here, but as you see, I just want you to if there's one thing that I can say to our church, especially at this time, is, it's this. Choose your friends wisely. The people that you surround yourself with, make sure that they're more concerned with your future than how it is that you make them feel. My wife and Richard have been two of the folks in my life that have, I mean, Rich has We've lived in the same city for the past 15 years. And one thing that's going on is he's been the ultimate truth teller. And it doesn't feel good in the moment. But as I sit and look back now, 
I can say that my future would have been jeopardized if Richard didn't go out on a limb and speak truth to me. Same thing with my wife. I mean, she does so daily. We, we live in the same house, but... That a, scalp, a scalpel is not bad if it's in the hands of somebody that's good and that you trust. Surround yourself with people that you trust. Choose your friends wisely. And just, and just a side note right here. If you feel like there's something that has to be said, some truth that will save the life of your friend, and you're scared because you feel like, well, this may threaten the relationship, and they'll never talk to me again? Ask yourself, is me being willing to tell them the truth and letting go of this relationship, does that have a possibility to save their future? And if it does, then I think that's better than the alternative of watching somebody wreck their life and saying absolutely nothing. Everybody that hurts you is not an enemy, and everybody that makes you feel good is not a friend. But you only see that good as you look to the future, not your feelings. Verse 8, better is the end of, thi- end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. All right, so just watch there. He says, look, better is the end than the start of it. And so what takes place is only those that are patient are really going to see what comes about. Verse 9, be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Verse 10, say not, and this is something that we all need to hear, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. We will look anywhere but to the future to determine what's good in life. We'll look to enjoyment to help us forget about the fact that we're going to die one day. We'll look to people to flatter us, to forget about the fact that we're flawed. And ultimately, we'll look to, to the past and say, man, I'm so frustrated, I'm angry with the way that things are right now. I just wish that I was back in the day when things were good. And what he says here, it's a caution. He says, no, 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 no. Wisdom never looks back to the past for, for the good old days. Wisdom looks to the future, not our feelings because of this. When it comes to the past, hindsight is not twenty twenty, especially when it relates to how good things are. You and I have this tendency to romanticize the past. Inside of us, as we look at the past, nobody sees it clearly. Everybody looks at the past and revises it to something that's not true. The clearest picture of this comes in the Bible. God had just delivered Israel from slavery. And in Numbers chapter 11, verse 1, it says that the people were so frustrated and mad by what God had, had done that, that, that they found themselves in a place of this. And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes, their hard times. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled and the fire of the Lord burned against them and consumed them. 
Look here at verses 4 through 6. I'm I'm just going to jump down just so that you can see this. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving, and the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost us nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. Do you know what they say? They're frustrated because all that God gave them was bread with their freedom. And they said, back in the day, we had meat and it cost us nothing. Except for your freedom. Listen, they were slaves in Egypt with no hope of anybody setting them free. There were no activists saying how bad things were for them back then. For 400 years, nobody rose up and created an emancipation proclamation. They were slaves. And as they look back on their past, they say, but at least we had brisket. Listen. The same thing takes place in our hearts. When we look back on our lives before meeting Christ, maybe you put your trust in Christ and you're a sister and you have new standards on what it means to be with somebody. And because of those standards, you find yourself in a place where you're lonely because there's nobody around and you sit back and start to reflect on, well, there was a time When I had to beat guys off with a stick. You did. Because they were disrespectful. You did. Because you were so consumed with receiving love from somebody else that you let somebody disrespect. But God freed you from all of that. And now you may not have the same attention from guys because you don't dress the same. And you may feel lonely, but you have your freedom. It's not better. Listen, and and that's just one picture. This takes place all across the board. That's why he doesn't go into instances, but he just says the moment that you don't look to your future, but the moment that you reflect on the past as if the past were these good old days, the easier it is for you to discount the things that God has done. And you don't see him as a deliverer from slavery. You see him as a destroyer of your present joy. And that's a false picture of God. We don't view the past the right way, and it affects our picture of the great God that we serve. So his point is, the best way to define good is not to look to your feelings, the things that will make you feel good. Look to your future. And what you and I come to grips with is that, all right, I know that I'm going to die one day, so I know that I need to live each day and make it count. All right, I know that I'm flawed. I know I got to surround myself with people that aren't just going to gas me up. 
And God, I know you're trying to take me somewhere. So I don't need to look back and think that yeah, I'm in a worse place right now. I do need to look to the future. But one thing that we come to grips with is this, that the future is still uncertain. I don't know what, what will come. So I can define good by trying to look to the future. But how does that help me face adversity? Verse 11 says this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. All that he says there is wisdom is good like money is good. Money can protect us from harm, but here's the advantage of wisdom. Wisdom is not just a defense. It's an offensive thing in that it actually preserves our life. It helps us in how we should live life, and here's the action that he gives us. The best way to face adversity is not to turn your back on it. It's not to forget that it's coming. It's not to surround yourself with people that'll flatter you and gas you up. It's not to long for times past, but the best way to face adversity is to focus on your father. The best way to face adversity is to focus on the person that knows the future. Verse 13, consider the work of God. Listen, who can make straight what he has made crooked? Right here, it attributes crookedness to what God has done. And, and that's how we feel, right? God, why did you do that? God, you've messed things up. God, I can't believe that I'm in this mess right now. And what he's saying is when you find yourself in that time, know that things are the way that they are because God has set things up the way that they are and you can't change the adversities that you find yourself in right now. But you can focus on your father. Consider the work of God. Verse 14. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other. So that man may not find out anything that will be after him. What he starts off here is he says, man, if, as you find yourself in hard times, consider the work of God. Consider God. Focus on God. So many times it's easy for us to focus on the adversity and to look at the hard time and to be so frustrated with the thing that has come our way. And he says the best way to face that is not to sit and, and to turn that over in your mind, back and forth. But if you're going to wrestle with something, don't wrestle with the adversity. Wrestle with the God who didn't author that hard time, but he authorized it. He allowed it. We know that God doesn't bring evil into our lives because he's good. But there are times where God will allow adversity very hard things to come into our life. And in those days, the very first thing that he says is this. You know, first of all, to wrestle with God, to consider God, is not just to come to him when times are, are bad. The very first thing that he says is, in the day of prosperity, be joyful. 
Rejoice. Do you know why? Because it's easy to blame God for things that are wrong and ignore God when things go well. It's easy when we find ourselves prosperous in this life to feel like it's about time and that's the way that things should be. But what he's saying here is, no, 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 there's somebody that is responsible for directing the future, the good times as well. So when those things come, and you may not have meat, and all that you have is bread, instead of complaining that you don't have meat, do you know what you should do? Constantly be joyful. Actively praise God. Actively remember that this that the good times that you have in this life, the good week that you have, the good things that God has blessed you with, they come from him. Life is not supposed to be that way. The natural bent of the world that we live in is on a downward spiral. Anything that's good is a gift from God. And the moment that we begin to take God's good gifts for granted is the moment that we stop praising him for things that go our way. The day that you and I stop rejoicing, the day that you and I stop actively thanking God for the small things, is the day that we start to take his gifts for granted and grow cold and apathetic and find our lives filled with complaining. This is why we come in here week after week. So regardless of if you've had a good week or a bad week, there is a reason to praise God. You may praise him for the future hope of what he would do in, his, uh, in your life, but you can't not praise him for the things that he's already done. Don't, don't let people merely share their good news around you, especially those that have trusted the Lord, without reminding them of who brought it their way. Praising God in the good times is a great way to build up this goodwill so that we can trust him when things go wrong. Make a habit. Some of us right now need to sit where we are and think and praise God right now for the things that he's done for us. The things that we don't deserve, don't let the days of prosperity be taken for granted. It's only a sinful and an ungrateful heart that expects God to do good for us and never to do bad. But he ends off and he says this, in the day of prosperity be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider that God has made the one as well as the other. We can praise God when things go well. When things don't go well, it's easy for us to spend our time trying to run away from our problems. But instead, what he's saying, no, 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 no. Don't, don't just run from your problems. Because there's a million places that you can run that are unhelpful. Run towards God. And here's what we know about this great God. 
Here's what we see about this great God in the pages of Scripture that when it comes to adversity and hard times, God does not just give us principles and ideologies. Look for the bright side of things. When it comes to adversity, God gives us people, biographies, instances. So all through the Bible, we see people that put their trust in God and went through the worst of times, and we saw a God that sustains them in in those worst of times. And not just in people, but in the perfect person. In the Bible, Jesus is the model of how to deal with adversity. Jesus is the one person that came to this earth, and based on the way that he lived, he shouldn't have had any adversity and heartache and awe. But do you know what he, he, he does? He takes it all, and he doesn't complain, and he goes to God with it all, and not just the stuff that comes on his life. He takes the adversity of all of us in our sin and puts it on him on the cross. And as he's on the cross feeling as if God has abandoned him and left him, he doesn't say, He doesn't look to the past to find his joy. What he does is he wrestles with his God. And he says, God, why have you forsaken me? And you know what he does at the end? The gospels say that at the end he says, Lord, into your hands I commit my spirit. We see a man that dealt with adversity his whole life, not just his but ours, the hard times that you and I should have had, especially in death, the death that we should have died as the payment for the ways that you and I have failed to trust God, Jesus took all of that on his back. And in the rest of the stories of the Bible, we see the hard times for people and how it worked out well for them in the end. But in Jesus, we see the hard times that he took on and how it worked out well for him and that he raised from the grave But what we see is how well it worked out for all of us that put our trust in him. And we see a God that allowed adversity. And it felt awful at the time. But now you and I come in here week after week and we look back and that's the thing that we rejoice in. That's what we praise God for. We don't look back at that time merely with pain. We we look back at that time in light of the future that it produces for all of us. It ends off and says, yo, God has done this. God has brought both the good and the bad so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. And it ends just the way that it starts. The future, the events that are going to transpire in our lives are largely unknowable to us. But we spend our time considering the many possibilities that we don't know. But God is knowable to us because he's made himself known. And in hard times, we consider the hard times, which which we can't really know for sure how it's going to pan out. And we ignore the very God who has made himself known. So I advocate that we flip that, that in the hard times, we don't just focus on the hard times, but we focus on a God that's good and trustworthy, and we're reminded of God's good character that can do very good things with very 
bad means. I want to end off with a quote from Charles Spurgeon, and he says this. Some plants die if they have too much sunshine. It may be that you are planted where you get but little. You are put there by the loving husbandman because only in that situation will you bring forth fruit unto perfection. Remember this. Had any other condition been better for you than the one in which you are, divine love would have put you there. You are placed by God in the most suitable circumstances. And if you had the choosing of your own lot, you would soon cry, Lord, choose my inheritance for me. For by myself, well, I am pierced through with many sorrows. For those of us that have put our faith in Jesus, our futures, though filled with many troubles and Sorrows, certain troubles and sorrows, our futures are written because of what Christ has done, and it is a happy ending. And we serve a God that does very good things with very bad means. So as we find ourselves in these hard times, don't get lost in these hard times. If you find yourself in troubling times, know that that's just an opportunity for you to get to know personally the great God that has sent you there. And if you don't know him and you find yourself in those same times, know that it may not be a curse or a punishment. It may be God's great gift to bring you to the end of yourself, which years from now when you put your faith, which if it leads to salvation in years from now, you'll look back at that time with fondness and be grateful that God gave you something that didn't feel good, but something that guaranteed you a future. We serve a good God, y'all. Let's pray. Father, uh, we so often want to argue with the lot that we have in life, and I pray that you would help us to step back and to rejoice in the lot that you've placed in front of us. God, give us grace to look to the future, Father. Give us grace to think about the end of our lives in a healthy way that leads us to live more seriously, Father. Lord, help us to surround ourselves with people that are more concerned about our futures than the way that we make them feel. God, and above all else, help us to see and to view you rightly, God. Uh, Give us eyes to think of the past in terms of your goodness and our failures and not our successes and your lack of goodness, Father. Give us grace to focus on you more than the problems that are sent our way. Help us to be patient. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.